Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2, to the second Psalm. We have paused, as it were, our sermon series on Ezekiel, and I'm going exploring in the Psalms during the end of summer and into the fall. Now, last Sunday I preached on Psalm 1. This Sunday I'm preaching on Psalm 2, and some of you are beginning to be scared. Because you know that the way I usually work is to proceed through an entire book. No, I will not be preaching through all 150 Psalms solid. Yet. (laughs) Quitter. But I am starting with Psalm 1 and 2 together for a reason. So Psalm 1, if you remember, last week, uh, two paths before us, the way of fools and sinners and mockers and the way of those who walk in the commands of God like trees planted by the water and so on. The person who walks in God's words, loving and delighting in God's law, is blessed. Blessed is, is the word that keeps defining this man, such that it's fine to call Psalm 1, Psalm of the blessed man. Psalm 2 is about the promise of a messianic king and a kingdom, a kingdom that would conquer all the other kingdoms and defeat all rebellion and opposition against it. All who take refuge in this king at the end of Psalm 2, verse 12, will be blessed. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, blessed was in Psalm 1. Psalm 2 closes with blessed are all who take refuge in this messianic king. So the Psalms are meant to be the prayer book of the church and in large measure the song book of the church for God's people as they do two things. You know what those two things are? Walk in His ways, Psalm 1, and wait on the promises of the Messianic King, Psalm 2. And every other psalm connects back to one of those. And sometimes both of them. But the rest of the Psalter, the rest of the book of Psalms, is about... Walking in the ways of God, Psalm 1, or expecting the promises of the Messianic King, Psalm 2. So so every psalm is concerned with one of those two things or both. So that's why we're starting a series on the psalms that that will go through kind of popcorn picking different ones with Psalm 1 and 2. It's the foundation for the whole thing. So my first point to you this morning is to consider the context of Psalm 2. But before we get there, I'm sorry, why don't we read it? Yeah? So Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against the Lord, and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, so this is the Lord speaking, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to Me, so this is now the psalmist talking, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Remember Psalm 1, the way. 
for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. So David writes in Psalm 2, I'll tell you why I think it's David later, because there's no uh, inscription on the psalm itself whether or not it's from David. But he writes that the sinful fallen world and the rulers of it hate the Lord because the Lord God has the right of rulership. This psalm begins with a question. Why do the nations rage? Or if you have a different translation, your translation might ask, why do the heathen rage? When the Bible uses the word nations, it is usually, not always, but it is usually a term that refers to the whole mass of the unbelieving world. So what are these nations doing in Psalm 2? We'll look at verse 2. Their kings are setting themselves. That is, I mean, setting themselves. I think of uh, setting your face in a particular direction and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going. You have verse 2 for me? I think it, yeah, I think it'll be up there. Uh, Setting themselves, making a firm decision. And they're taking counsel together. Okay, they're talking to each other. Planning, scheming, teaming up. Against whom? Well, verse 2 tells us, thank you, thank you, I heard it, the Lord. Against Yahweh and against Yahweh's anointed. Okay, in the Old Testament, this language can mean only one thing. Against the king. Anointed is a term of kingship. The king was the anointed one. The king was God's selected and anointed representative on earth in Israel. So, why are these nations so mad? Look at verse 3. The nations are mad because they believe themselves to be enslaved. Let us burst there, plural, that's the Lord and His anointed, the Lord and His King. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. So if you were to ask these nations, is the God of Israel powerful and is His King ruling? They would say, yes, and we hate His guts. His rules and His laws are oppressive and mean and stupid and we hate them. And we're going to beat him down. What is God's response to all this? Verse 4. He thinks it's funny. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Notice that God Almighty is not even standing or pacing around nervously worried about what these nations are going to do and oh, they hate me. Isn't that like, what am I going to do about that? That really hits my self-image. No, he's sitting comfortably and laughing saying, get a load of these guys. (laughs) Why is he laughing? Because the nations are angry. They are in rebellion against their Creator and against His King on earth. And so we read the result, verses 5 and 6. Then He, the Lord, will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, my holy hill. The reason this is so funny, verse 4, is because this king and his kingdom cannot, I was going to say, cannot be torn down. Never mind that. They can't even be threatened because God is the one that's established it. Then in verse 7, there's a shift in the narration or in who it is that's speaking. We learn that it is God's anointed king who has been narrating this and then he moves into the first person. He's asking, Why do the nations rage? Don't they know who their king is? And in verse 7, King David says, I'll tell them what God 
has said to me. He said what? You are my son, today I have begotten you. So sonship language for kings in the Old Testament and in the ancient world more broadly happens all the time. Very, very familiar. Sonship language and kingship language go together. So the king has been called the son of God. And then God says to his king on earth, what? Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I I didn't mean to hurry over the I have begotten you. The, The idea is that Uh, because uh, King David was set apart and anointed by God, this language is used of my, my kingship came into being. It was born on that day, as it were. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This has always been God's plan from the beginning. If anyone ever tells you all God cared about was the nation of Israel and that He wanted them to stay put, He didn't care about all those Gentiles until Jesus. Then God finally started caring about the nations. Absolute nonsense. It has always been God's plan from the very beginning that His Davidic king would rule over the world. Okay? I lost my spot. Give me just a moment. So, uh, the psalm then closes with a warning. Verses 10 through 12. Okay? Telling the kings to be wise, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, saying, kiss the sun. Let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. I don't want you to be confused. Because we associate a kiss with romance, but in the ancient world and in many other parts of the present day world, a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the ring of a ruler was to acknowledge his kingship and that you loved the fact that he was a king. It was a greeting of affection. So don't read that and feel weirded out. <laughs> so the question then is, what do we do with this psalm? I've tried to give you a picture of kind of original audience how King David would have been writing it in his time. For the question, what do we do with this psalm, we should always, 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 if we're using an Old Testament text, ask ourselves, how does this thing get used in the New Testament? How does this thing get used in the New Testament? Because we believe that all of the Scriptures point to Jesus. They all testify about Him. We are not in the New Testament taught explicitly how every single verse of the Old Testament applies to Jesus and is fulfilled by Him. But we do know that it all does testify to Him. Some of it we've been given pretty explicit guidance about in the New Testament when an Old Testament text gets quoted. That's terrific. Psalm 2, I'm happy to tell you, is one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. Apparently it was one of Jesus' favorites. One of His favorite songs to sing was Psalm 2. And so, the, that's the good news. The bad news is we will not have, this, have time this morning to go to every place it occurs in the New Testament or gets mentioned in the New Testament, but we're going to hit the really important ones. So, it, one of those is Acts 4. In Acts chapter 4, you might remember, the apostles are threatened by the authorities. Okay? They're threatened by the authorities. Basically, stop preaching about this Jesus or you're going to be in really big trouble. We're going to make it hurt. And then they get released. And then we pick it up in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, that's why I think the psalm was written by David, because they said so, 
David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? Psalm 2. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Here's the application. For truly in this city, there were gathered together. Same language. The rulers, okay? Against your holy servant, Jesus. There's the anointed. Whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What are the apostles saying? They're saying that when Psalm 2 originally hit the ears uh, and the songs of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it was about King David and written by him, verse 25 in Acts. But then in, in this new age that's dawning, they had been given new eyes to see this psalm, and it was nothing short of a line-by-line prophecy that had come to pass. Let me show you, because it's really cool. The apostles realized that when the psalmist sings, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings and rulers rebel against the Lord and against His anointed king-slash-son? That those angry rulers... So, so in one sense, is that about all angry rulers who rebel against God? Yes, but in a much grander sense, that psalm uh, is about angry rulers that have names in the first century. So the New Covenant sort of version of this is, why do the nations rage? Why are Pontius Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas so mad? That's what the psalm is mainly in its fulfillment talking about. Okay, I am not saying that the Old Testament understanding of the psalm is untrue. Because it would still be true for us today. Listen, it's still true that all the unbelieving nations rage against the Lord and against His Son, Jesus. It is still true that they see God's rule as slavery. Because when you tell sinful men that there's a God in heaven who calls them to repent, they hear it as slavery in chains. It is still true that the Lord in heaven laughs at those fools as they try to build Babel-like towers to war against Him. It is still true that the Lord answers their rebellion by saying, My Davidic king and his kingdom, my son and his kingdom, have already been set up. This is already done. It's not open for a vote or a debate. It is finished, if you like. It is still true that the Lord has promised his son as a possession all of the nations of the world. And it is still true that all the rulers and powers and judges and kings and presidents and congressmen and mayors are called by the Lord to kiss the Son, that is, to bow the knee before God's Davidic King, Jesus Christ. So the Old Covenant thrust of Psalm 2 still works, if you want to put it that way. We've just come to realize that the Davidic King in view is our Lord Jesus. But I also want you to note that this psalm is far more prophetically specific than than David and all the people in his day ever dreamed. I want you to see that this psalm speaks not just about Jesus, but precisely of His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascended inauguration, and His promise that He will rule the nations. That's what the apostles said back in Acts 4. So now that the apostles have given us that picture, okay, that's what this psalm is about, let me try again 
to read it to you as they understood it. Verses 1 and 2. Yeah, so it'll go on the screen behind me. Listen, listen to this psalm put through the, the, the Jesus New Covenant fulfillment, if you like. Why do the Gentile nations of Pilate and Caesar and Caiaphas and Herod rage? Why do they set up a plan to kill the Son of God? Verse 3. Why do they say, we're going to shut God up? We're going to refuse His rule. Why are they beating Him? Why are they spitting on Him? Why are they crucifying Him? Answer, they think they're winning. They think they're killing God's anointed. And in response, verse 4, the God of heaven laughs. He will speak to them in His fury. And He will say, is that all you've got? Verse 5, When the powers think they have killed the sun, God in heaven is laughing. When the sky goes black and the sun cries out, they will then be terrified by the fury of God. They will be afraid of what they have done. Why? Because, verse 6, God has set His King on Calvary's hill. I thought He was dead. No. Verse 7 and 8. He is alive. He steps out of the tomb and says, The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. Right? And so, this verse has sometimes, verse 7 has sometimes been misunderstood and abused by heretics and false teachers to say, Look here, the son is not eternal. The son has not always existed. The son came into existence. Psalm 2 says so. Today I have begotten you. Hello? Here, Jesus is not saying, sorry, here's Jesus saying that on a certain day He came into existence. So the argument goes. So if Jesus hasn't always existed, the Son has not always been God. To them I say, please read Acts 4. When God says, I have begotten you this day, according to the way the apostles are telling the story. Remember, they start in verse 1, crucifixion, and then when they get around to verses 7 and 8, what are they talking about but resurrection? When God says, I have begotten you this day, He isn't narrating the Christmas story and saying that God the Son came into existence in Mary's womb. He's saying, on this day, you've become the resurrected King, the firstborn of the dead. So what are the disciples doing with Psalm 2 in Acts 4? They are saying, Jesus Christ steps out of the tomb and hears from His Father, this day, you are Newly begotten, firstborn of the dead, the first resurrected man, securing the promise that one day all of us are going to get up out of our graves to glorify our resurrected King. And Jesus Christ, 40 days later, ascends up into heaven. God the Father seats Him at His right hand. For what else do you do with a King who has all authority over heaven and earth? Where else is He going to sit except a throne? And the Father says to the Son, the inaugurated reigning Son, Ask, and I will give you the nations. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the end of the earth your possession, the blood-bought nations that are yours by right. Will you have them? And Jesus says, Yes. Do not let this pass you by. Jesus Christ is King of the nations. I did not say He will be king someday. I said He is the king right now. 
Because God the Father on the day of His ascension and heavenly inauguration said, Will you have all of these nations? And the Son said, Yes, I will. And so He begins to rule over those who rejoice in His Gospel and those who declare war on Him, verse 9, will be broken. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces. And because of that, verse 10, Therefore, with this information, O kings, be warned. Attention all you kings, all you rulers and judges who have been given a measure of real power and authority on earth. So you, most of all, more than any other men, hate the idea that there could be someone with more authority and power than you. You'd better listen up because there's a king in heaven. And you can hate him all you want. But when God finishes laughing, you'll meet the wrath of His Son. This is no joke. The rulers of the world are called to serve this God, verse 11. To serve Him, to rejoice with trembling. To kiss the Son, verse 12. Worship this resurrected King, lest you fall under His wrath, from which there is no hiding place or refuge, but but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Better get more than one, praise God. Come on, y'all, you got to wake up. <laughs> so what does this mean for all of us? It means we have to be a people who recognize what Psalm 2 has just told us, that Jesus is King. That's what's given to us, okay? So he's, given, he's been given rule over the nations. Let's go back to verse 8 and 9. Jesus Christ has been given rule over the nations. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I want to take you to another place in the New Testament where we see this language. Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. From his mouth, speaking of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Okay? Right there, that's Psalm 2 language. Anyone here in that who knew Psalm 2 would say, okay, apparently we're singing about Psalm 2 now. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That's the latter part of Psalm 2, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the anointed king. Now, Jesus was crowned king after his ascension, right? We've confessed it before together, seated at the right hand of the Father. Revelation 19, written to first century Jews, is a declaration of the work this king means to begin. That is, he will break rebellious nations with a rod of iron. And he's going to start with Jerusalem, 70 A.D., if you know your history. As for the rod of iron, just a quick word on that. Rod of iron, it doesn't always mean painful judgment, unless it does. It doesn't always mean painful judgment unless it does. That's how you should read Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them can also be translated you shall rule them. You shall rule them. You shall um, break them as as you would a horse. Break them on the way to maturity. Or alternatively, dash them into pieces. So this is a coming blessing or a coming judgment here. The point is is that this rule will be a rule that will result in judgment if the rulers and authorities are intent on resisting and hating the king. One more verse in Revelation, chapter 2 verses 26 through 20 
uh, 9. We'll start at 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. So, by the way, if you don't remember your book of Revelation, we're in chapter 2. It's letters to the churches. So this is written to Christians. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Wait a minute. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself, oh, there it is, have received authority from my Father. Well, now, wait a minute. What does this mean? This is Jesus speaking to Christians, and Jesus says, He who is mine, who walks with me, will rule over the nations. The one who keeps my word will get authority with me. So Christians, we actually participate in this reign of Christ. He doesn't call us a kingdom of uh, a nation of kings and priests for nothing. Now we don't rule on our own authority. We don't exercise our own strength. We don't uh, you know convert by the sword or by the gun or something like that. Rather, we partake, we imitate Jesus' kingly action. We are gathered together in Christ constituted by the gospel and the preaching of the word and we're part of overcoming the nations y'all god means to authorize you church to move forward not bearing weapons to kill but bearing the gospel which kills and then makes alive jesus means to do it and he means to win he's been conquering since 70 a.d He started with Jerusalem, and he ain't stopping until he's done. So what can we take from Psalm 2 in terms of application? Yeah, I got time for that. What does Psalm 2 have for us today? I'm going to close with four points of application briefly for all of us before we go to the Lord's table together. First, man's attempts to rebel against Jesus or to ignore Jesus, which by the way is the same thing, Ignoring God is a form of rebellion. You can do that if you want to, but you will never thwart God's plans. Remember in Acts, all the powers and kings were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, and what did they end up doing? Do you recall? They ended up carrying out God's plan. God is not intimidated by rebels and schemes and deep state overlords and globalists and ordinary middle-class God-haters and God-ignorers. Rebellious men always think they're getting away and heaven laughs. Our God laughs at the plans and the schemes and the conspiracies Because why? Because it's already His, y'all. All these nations already are the property of Jesus Christ. You won't learn that by watching the news. The news will fill you with fear because it's going to look at the rulers of the world and say to us, okay, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're the ones with the guns. They're the ones with the enforcers. They're the ones with the legislators. And Jesus is great and all, but He seems to think a small group of fishermen was going to conquer the Roman Empire. Oh wait, they did! And they're still winning. The great, so that's the first point. First point of application is that man's attempts to rebel against Jesus or to ignore Jesus never thwart God's plans. Second, the greatest lie that has ever been told, it started in the garden and it's got all kinds of different forms even up to today. 
the greatest lie that's ever been told, is that God is nothing but a divine slave master and that real freedom is found in getting out of the chains of His religion and His Word and His Christ. In Psalm 2, the rulers say, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart, cast their cords away from us, right? I made the point earlier that the rulers see God as a maker of chains. The language, though, interestingly enough, of bonds and cords can also be farming language, plowing language. So you could, you could go with this in a chains of slavery sort of way, or you could go with it as a yoke of slavery sort of way, plowing it and the yoke. Same thing either way, however you want to slice that. So what they're saying under that, in that light, is we will not labor in the field for this God. We will not wear His yoke. We will not plow His fields. We will rule our own destiny. Do you begin to see why Jesus took the time to say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, wherever that one is, there it is, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. To the unconverted, to those who don't know Jesus, His yoke is intolerable. And it causes resentment. And they make plans to throw it off. Men and sinners, kings and senators, congressmen and mayors, make plans to cast it off. But the reality is, if you want slavery... Go ahead and take on any other yoke but that of the Lord Jesus. The yoke of our modern age, which demands you, you must find yourself, make yourself, design yourself, and then demand that everyone recognize what you've designed. The yoke of the woke, if you'll pardon the rhyme, that demands endless resentment and endless penance for sins that can never be forgiven or atoned for. Or the yoke of the celebrity and the social media influencer who is constantly thirsting for attention and validation. Are you tired yet? Or the yoke of generational rage, hatred of your fathers or hatred of your sons. Are you tired of desperately trying to make sure that everyone knows how righteous you are because thank you God for not making me like those millennials or those boomers? Christ calls you, saying, compared to those endless strivings of death, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you cannot thwart my plans. You can only decide if you will be one who reveals that God is gracious to sinners or if you will prove by your life that rebellious sinners who reject Him will get away with nothing. You're going to serve a purpose either way. Third, while men are planning, God is laughing. Verse 4. While men are planning, God is laughing. Don't forget this, especially in evil days like ours. The nation's plan and scheme, sinners have all too frequently been in league with the serpent as they seek to silence God, ignore God, mock God, curse God. About 2,000 years ago, they even tried to kill Him. And the Lord of heaven laughs. And says, take your best shot. And they did. 
Acts 4, gathered together, crucified the Lord of glory. God the Father raised him up and said, You are my son, and today I have begotten you from the dead. He rose up from the grave. He ascended, and he was given the blood-bought kingdom that he purchased. So do you realize what it is? What the great inheritance is that the Father has given to the Son, verse 8. The great inheritance that the Father has given to the Son in the nations. Dear saints, it's you. It's you. You are the inheritance that Jesus has been given. You and your children who will come after you and their children and their children. The ones who will echo songs of praise off these walls in a hundred years and a thousand years until every sinner trying to break the yoke of God is cast down or rescued. Finally, I said, while men are planning evil, God in heaven is laughing. That was number three. Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So think of the Great Commission for a moment, if you will. Go, and and, and in your going, to the nations. Baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The transaction that happens in verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. We are not waiting for that to happen, it has already happened. All authority has been given to the Son in heaven and on earth. Amen? All authority has been given to the Son. Jesus has told us, all authority has been given to me. I have all authority in heaven and in Alexandria and in Pineville and in Rapids Parish and in the state of Louisiana. So we are not suggesting to people that Jesus might be a good idea or that they should try Jesus for heaven's sake. We go out into the world and we declare, you've been bought. The nations have been purchased. We are not consulting you. This is already done. Kiss the Son. That is, believe and worship Jesus, lest He be angry. This is settled. It's not a question that requires a vote. And let's be honest, right? If we left it up to a vote, the rulers of the world and all of us would vote no. You guys weren't ready for that one. The rulers of the world would vote no if Jesus were left up to a vote. The Father said to the Son, Ask of Me. You died. You purchased it. Do you want it? And Jesus said, I want all of it. Every square inch of it. The the reign has been established. The nations who object to the decree are about as much of a threat to it as a man shouting at the sun in the sky for being too hot. Pretty sure the sun just keeps on shining, don't it? The sun isn't bothered. And if you resist God, He will still use you, like He used Pilate or Herod. So take refuge in the sun, because blessed are all who take refuge in Him. He's king over the nations. Well, I don't really see that today. It doesn't really look like he's king. Fine and fair enough. Fine and fair enough. It doesn't look like he's particularly victorious. How did things look on Good Friday? Maybe like not particularly victorious? You see the same ruin at the cross. We don't see the victory of God when there are wicked schemes around us and when violence threatens us and when recession gets really bad and food prices go up. 
and when people are taken from us too soon. We don't see the rule of God in those moments. If you were at the foot of the cross, though, would you have seen the victory? Probably not. It doesn't matter what you see. Do you see? It doesn't matter what you see. What matters is what God sees and what God says. Who cares about what you or I think we see and know? What has God said? God says that He has set His King in Zion and all the nations will come to Him. Forward march, dear saints. We literally can't lose. In the name of Jesus, Amen. So our Father, fit us and ready us, if only just to believe this, to believe this amazing news of our conquering King. This is good news. To use parlance from C.S. Lewis, Aslan is on the move. And so we know and confess this, even when we confess it against the sorrows and pains and troubles of this life, as the psalmist did again and again and again. And so put this firm confession on our lips, Lord, and help us to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.